Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Who Says No. I am one of your hosts, Sam Quinn. Colin not here today, but Colin will be back with us soon. As you all know, the NBA offseason is officially at hand. We are past the point in the season where we get to talk about real basketball, and now we just get to talk about hypotheticals, which is really right up my alley. Joining me today is a man who has done some great, great work for Premium Hoops and for Indie Cornrows, but that's not what he's known for. He's known for having the palate of a six-year-old. Mark Schindler, what have you eaten today? Um, well, I just had a, uh, a bowl of life cereal as a snack uh, to round out my day and a cup of coffee before that. Um, I, I know that I tweet out some pretty, uh, pretty random stuff, uh, but I, I promise I do actually eat and eat in a normal way. I just uh, I, I, get a, I get a good deal of joy out of uh, playing the bit sometimes. And if, I, yeah. if I have some writer's block, one of my favorite things to do is just talk about something that's not basketball. And for whatever reason, it sticks and people, people like it. So, uh, so I keep doing it. You strike me as somebody who eats the same thing almost every day. Like you strike me as someone who has a real rigid food routine. Um, I definitely eat uh, peanut butter toast like every single day, man. I, peanut butter toast is just something I could never give up. It's so good, man. Like no it's jelly? versatile. Oh, no. Jelly is a no-go for me. Um, jam's fine. Jelly's no. Uh, jelly's uber processed. Jam's processed too, but let's be real with ourselves. But uh, no, jam is better consistency. Jelly is just the, the texture is a little it's – a, it's, a it's a lot to take in. Um, so I'm a big peanut butter on toast guy, but yeah. I am not a big jelly person or jam person either. So I think I'm with you on that. The one that I will never, ever forgive you for is calling shrimp cold sea vermin. That is just like, listen, <laughs> well, I, is can, cold, I can. Like, cooked shrimp is fantastic, but cold. No, man. Shrimp cocktail is an abomination. We need to stop so, having it at family events. What is your appetizer of choice at a steakhouse? At a steakhouse? Uh, yeah. Oh, calamari for sure, man. I love I calamari. I do love calamari. But let's talk about free agency. So what we want to do today, the most, I don't, the most consistent part of free agency every year is that there are always, I don't know, let's say five to 10 contracts that either really don't make sense in the moment or that turn out to be very, very bad and damaging to their teams. What we want to do today is get to the root of the decision-making process that leads to those contracts. What is behind a bad contract in the NBA? So we have a couple of different root causes that we're going to talk about. So the first real issue that teams run into in free agency is misevaluating scalability in players, essentially thinking a guy who plays 15 minutes can play 30 minutes or a guy who takes 10 shots can take 20 shots. I'll throw out a couple of examples here. Matthew Delvadova 2016 is just a very classic example of somebody who was very clearly a reserve and a role player on a very good team. The Bucks signed him thinking he could be a starter. He was not. But then you get the more traditional example of like the scoring six man on a winning team going and becoming a starter on a bad team. Reggie Jackson on the Pistons is an example. I think Tyler Johnson on the Heat was another version of somewhere in between the two where he was more of a 3D guy, but the Heat had sort of hoped that maybe he could develop more on the ball. So when you hear the idea of misevaluating scalability, what comes to mind? What do you think is going through the mind of a team when they sign a player to a contract like that? Yeah, so I think um, one thing I would hedge on, Reggie Jackson did have a really nice stretch before the ankle injuries happened. So Right, I, uh, I think yeah. we don't want to talk too much about injuries today because that's just, yeah, that can happen. Exactly, anybody, yeah, right? but just, like, just worth noting. Um, no, in terms of looking at scalability, like that's such a great point. And I, I, something I, I want to elaborate on later when we talk more about specific guys, but um, – I think something that factors in is like you have to acknowledge what their role is on their current team and what it's going to look like on their next team. Like just to bring up a guy right now, like Tim Hardaway Jr. is, you know, one of the coveted free agents this, this offseason. Um, I personally am hoping that he'll resign in Dallas because it's been awesome seeing his career blossom the way it has there. But it's so important to note how important Luca is for what Tim Hardaway does. Like Tim Hardaway still does some stuff off the dribble, but like, he went from being in Atlanta and New York. He was asked to create a lot and it, it wasn't awesome for him. Like he was still a good player. Like I, I'm not going to take that away from him, but he went from being a solid six man to occasional spot starter to being the third best player on a pretty good team last year. And a lot of that is because of playing off of Luca's gravity. And I think in some ways he's still a little bit overstretched as a third guy, but he's been very, very good in Dallas. And I think that's one of the things I look at and I'm like, okay, well, let's say if, 
you know, a team like New York, like if for whatever reason they bring Tim Hardaway back. I'm glad we're getting to this. I have THA in a different category, but I was going to go down this road anyway. He would fit based on the player that he was last year with what the Knicks need, but the Knicks really cannot go back down that road, can they? Yeah, I mean, that would be the third time with that. I don't think we've ever seen a player do that before, if I remember correctly. Um, it'd have to be close. I mean, that, there's probably been one or two guys, but but point being, like, if he was asked to step into a, you know, a, a role that's demanding 5% more usage or something like that, that's, it's, you're, you're just going to see diminishing returns. That's how it works most of the time. It's, um, you know, anything's possible, but I would, We've just seen before, you know, that this was the first time where he really felt optimized in his role. So things like that are, are what I would look at, look at for sure when talking about scalability. Well, I think teams in general have run into a lot of issues with signing guys from heliocentric offenses, right? Like guys yep. who have played with LeBron have been overpaid. Guys yes, who have, exactly. I mean, Luca, I think he's going to create a lot of contracts like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I, I would just say in general, like be honest about what sort of offense a team is coming or a player is coming from. Because if you're on Luca's team, everything is stemming so much out of Luca that, like, even if you're putting him with a normal point guard, and even if you're saying we are just signing you to be a spot up shooter, it's not the same when Luca's not on that team because a normal point guard isn't going to run 90% of the possessions or whatever Luca's number ends up being. Yeah, yeah, most definitely, man. That's that's a great point. And uh, I, I like, I, it's you kind of stole what I was going to say. Like, uh, in looking at Luca, I think we're going to see a lot of that. Um, and seeing guys who play really well alongside him. And if they, they leave in free agency or via trade, um, it might look different. And again, it's not, it's not a one size fits all thing, but I, I do think it's a, it's something to note and keep track of moving forward for sure. I am a little worried about Dorian Finney-Smith in this regard down the line, because he's, been, he's grown into a pretty good corner three-point shooter. Mm-hmm. If Luke is not the one setting up those shots, I do worry that like, you might sign him and he ends up being close to a zero on offense or, you know, like certainly not what you expect. He's a good enough defender that he's still going to have value, but like that just seems like a formula for a bad contract to me. So I have three guys that really stand out as possibilities this year, as far as misplaced scalability goes, the super obvious one that everybody's going to have is Alex Caruso. I really hope that he resigns with the Lakers because so much of what he does well is really reliant on playing with LeBron James. If you sign him and just say, like, you're going to be our starting shooting guard next year, I don't think that's going to go well. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, like, I mean, I guess it's it's possible and it depends on the team, but uh, he's exceptional playing as, as a wing with really good defense who has some ball skills and is a quality passer from a standstill. But, yeah, I think if a team's going to ask him to come in and be a starter in their backcourt, not playing off of a big wing. So, like, I mean, he, he's a guy who – I don't know if he would flip teams, but like if he like in terms of looking at guys who would really help the, the Clippers, like Alex Caruso would be a really good sign for the Clippers. Uh, that's another aside. But like point being, if you're not playing alongside somebody else who's really commanding the ball and you're asking him to to run pick and roll pretty consistently, I, I don't I again, anything's possible. But I would I would probably bet against that being uh, a great opportunity for him. But I also would say he's probably somebody who knows that. But. Right. Well, he is. I mean, LeBron has been so effusive with his public praise of Caruso. Like, I think that's one of those things where behind closed doors, he's telling the front office, like, this is a guy you're bringing back. I think he's more of a connective passer than a playmaker. Right. Like you yeah. said it yourself with he's not somebody who you want to run a bunch of pick and rolls through every game. But he's somebody that like is going to get the pass and keep the ball moving and he can dribble a little bit like he's somebody that functions very, very well. Also in a low minutes role because he plays with so much intensity, right? Like mm-hmm. his effort level is not something that I think you could expect to translate over 35 minutes. He is somebody that plays so hard and defends full court so often that like 18 to 20 minutes is the right amount for him. A very different sort of player. And I, I think this is going to be, I don't want to say most controversial on this list, but like Derek Rose, like I think people were very, very high on what he did for the Knicks, but he did it in 25 minutes a night. I think if you sign him expecting him to scale up any more than that, you're really overstraining him with his age and his injury history. And then the last one, we're going to get into another category that he falls in is Bobby Portis, especially coming off of the game six that he just had. We've seen starter Bobby Portis. It did not go particularly well. We've seen reserve Bobby Portis and he's won a championship. I think any team that signs Bobby Portis as a starter is going to look a lot more like the Wizards of the Knicks than the Bucks. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I would hedge a little bit because just worth noting how bad that Wizards team was. Um, and same thing with, with the Knicks when he was there. Um, but it's a really good point. Like, and I think I want to say it was Seth Partnow who wrote this article uh, not too long ago. Uh, probably actually it's probably about a year and a half ago now that I think about it. But, um, you know, on shooting percentage is really often just quite misleading. And it's more about what a guy's gravity is uh, because, you know, shooting percentage is not conducive with gravity all the time. Uh, so it's better to have somebody who's, you know, shooting seven threes per game on 35% with real versatility in their shot than, you know, somebody who's shooting two and a half threes per game and hitting 42% of them or something. The Darren kind Collison of where Bobby yes. Oh my God. Don't remind me. Um, Darren Collison. I don't think Darren Collison ever shot a, uh, a, a three with somebody within six feet of him. When he was in Indiana, it felt like, but um, still a really good shooter. I mean, I think he shot like what, like 40, he led the NBA or year, 46 right? Yeah, I think he shot like 46% in, uh, in 18, 19. But, but point being, like, um, he's a guy who, if he's taking, you know, four or five threes a game, some of them are contested. Yeah, but I mean, shooting, uh, he almost led the NBA in three point percentage this year. And that's, that's not going to hold up uh, across the board. Um, or, no, I'm thinking Marcus Morris. Uh, wrong, wrong, uh, wrong utility, uh, forward bench, bench guy. But, um, point being like, yeah, you're totally right. Well, that stuff just doesn't scale up easily uh, unless there's some meaningful, uh, change in shot diet or the way that a guy's attacking And that, Again, it's possible, but like you're saying, this is one year, um, playing alongside just about the most dominant offensive force in the NBA. And we saw two, uh, two series where he could hardly stay on the court. So I think, that's like another thing to bring up, like watching what somebody does in one series and letting that uh, tamper with your view of, of what they are as a player overall is it can be a little bit uh, dicey. And we've seen that just in discourse and like people talking overall about about players throughout the, the course of the playoffs. Well, to add to that with Portis, right, like part of the reason that you could get away with playing him against Phoenix is that you have Giannis, right? Like that makes his defensive deficiencies so much easier to work with, right? Like he's ideally you're probably well you can play him at four because he can shoot but like in pick and roll he can't really drop he's not great on switches the bucks tried to like they tried to trap a little bit with him and that didn't really work like having Giannis as sort of like this i can cover all of this ground and make up for portis that makes portis a lot more valuable on a normal team you're not going to be able to pair him with another big that can do all of those things on defense so you have to be honest with yourself about who you have when you're signing a player like that yeah, exactly. That's such a great point. And I think one of the biggest things we're going to have today, it, it feels like, and, and the way that I just tend to look at things in general is uh, one of the reasons I'm not a fan of doing player rankings or, you know, talking about like, oh, well, this player is like the 50th best player in the league. Like sometimes I do that to contextualize things, but point being like, I just think that number's really derivative. Like what a guy could actually be on a team varies, you know, it just varies from team to team. Context is so important. And, uh, yeah, I think teams have gotten a lot better at figuring that out in deals, but I think we're going to see this offseason. Uh, uh, there still is some variance in how teams view it. The next group I want to talk about is, well, I think variance is a good way to put it because it's variance within a team itself, right? There are clearly situations where a GM signs a player expecting him to play one role and the coaching staff is just not on board with that, right? We read a lot about this when Dennis Lindsay left the Jazz Part of the disconnect between him and Quinn Snyder was that he apparently wanted Derek Favors to start, at least in the first stint. We don't know if he wanted him to start last time, but you figure if you're giving Derek Favors three years, $27 million, you probably want him to play some minutes alongside Rudy Gobert, which Quinn Snyder was just not willing to do this year. Another example of that was Derek Jones Jr., right? Like, I think that Neil O'Shea signed him expecting, like, okay, we have these two small guards in the backcourt, Damon CJ, not good defenders. So we're going to get Covington and Derek Jones Jr. as our forwards to try to make up for that. Well, Derek Jones was such an offensive zero that Terry Stotts just stopped playing him, right? It's hard to predict where these situations are going to come because we don't know about the politics within front offices. But I think this is one of the most pervasive issues that leads to a bad contract. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. And again, those things are really hard to see coming, uh, but Especially, I mean, with Derek Jones, that was so weird this year. I anticipated that working out so differently than it did. Um, but yeah, I completely agree. I did too. Part of the issue was 
I think he would be best suited for a stretch center of some sort. It doesn't even have to be somebody who's taking 10 threes, but like if you put him with Jokic, for example, I would want, like, I think his best role is as a role man and pick and roll. And that's so hard to do when you also have Nurkic, right? Like, I guess mm-hmm. you're sticking Derek Jones in the dunker spot. That was just something where Terry Stotts valued offense a lot more than he valued defense. I think they could have been decent on offense with Jones playing alongside Nurkic, but their path to winning clearly was where there's no scenario where we're going to be, we're going to be a good defensive team. We just have to go all in on scoring. And we saw that with Norm Powell when they made that trade and they went super small. I mean, it wasn't ideal, but the net rating of the starting lineup was enormous. It was like plus 15 or something. Mm-hmm. But I do think that's just really important in general to make sure that your coaching staff and your front office are operating in lockstep because a lot of the time they're not. And that leads to not only bad contracts, but like that leads to guys getting fired. Yeah. Or, you know, stepping away uh, in a role that would have Excuse been fired. Me. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, no I mean, I'm just thinking about Utah. Like that, I, I remember reading that article. I think it was uh I think it was Andy Larson from the Salt Lake Tribune who put that out. And I, uh, yeah, I remember reading that. I was like, did Dennis Lindsay watch Derek favors play in new Orleans? Because that they're like, I just don't know how you could watch that. And I'm not trying to sound slanderous, but it was just like, it, it definitely, uh, it definitely makes you think about how differently people view the game or maybe don't, you know, I, I, but yeah, exactly. Like having a, uh, having buy-in between all three parties and the player, the team, uh, I mean, team more like, uh, gosh, team staff. So like, you know, coaches obviously. And then uh, with the the front office as well. I mean, that's hard. Uh, that's really hard to do. And it's definitely a balance that we try and see play out. Like, I think there are a lot of guys who um, like one, one thing that I always struggle with in, in trying to talk to fans about is, you know, there are, there, there like, I mean, if, if somebody is, is struggling in the starting lineup, um, you know, pe- fans are very quick to be like, and this is not me trying to be uncool to fans, but just point being like a lot of fans will be like, you know, oh, this guy needs to get pulled, like, you know, change up the starting lineup. And it's just really not that simple. Like, and this is, you know, I, I think if you're a guy making $20 million a year and you're struggling, um, you have a lot more pull in the organization or like just what you're saying probably matters. Well, not, not that it matters more, but there is really, there, there is, you know, some kind of, power and organization that comes with having that amount of money attached to your name and the kind of player you are. So it's just, it's never as simple as we, we kind of make it out to be on surface. Well, even in that situation, it's not even necessarily the player making a lot of money. A lot of times it is, but there's also like, how much did you promise the player when yeah. you brought him in? Because that's going to, it's going to affect your relationship with the agent, right? Like I think if you gave Frank Vogel truth serum, he would tell you that he wanted to bench Andre Drummond a lot sooner than he did. But the Lakers clearly made promises to him about his role when he got to Los Angeles. He wasn't on a big contract, but he was a big name. And it was the sort of situation where, like, we really don't want to burn this bridge. And to an extent, they went the same way with Montrezl Harrell, right? Where, like, clearly to some extent that was driven by Rich Paul was a number of other clients on the Lakers. So you have to be very careful politically. Like, I think something that people in general don't appreciate enough is that NBA teams are really complex ecosystems with a lot of different moving parts. And changing one thing can affect a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. There's, it's a lot more than just uh, what one guy, like, I mean, one guy can have such a huge impact on everything and not in, I mean, from a, a personal sense and also from just a team construction sense, like how lineups are constructed. Um, I, I definitely agree, man. So it's very hard to predict which players will be, you know, impacted in this way because we just don't know the politics in the front office. I do think something that we tend to see is that front offices prioritize offense and coaches prioritize defense, not in a vacuum, but I think that tends to be true on a larger scale. So I'll throw out one name and that's Harold. If he opts out, I do think there's a scenario where some team signs him for like the mid-level exception thinking, yeah, we're going to get the Clippers version of him, right? We're going to get 25 really good minutes a night. And then the coaching staff is going to see him and they're going to get into the playoffs. And they're just going to say, we can't leave this guy on the floor defensively. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good point. I think it feels like with how things went last offseason, um, it feels like the league is kind of in a place where they view Montrez Harold the same way that I think a lot of people uh, analyzing the game do. And again, that's not a slight on Harold, but it's just so hard to be six foot seven 
as a center and six foot seven, six foot eight, uh, and and be an impactful rim protector and and carry a defense for an entire game while not being able to stretch the floor or play make on offense. Um, so yeah, I agree. I think like he's a guy who probably um I actually you know, you know, I think I would hedge a little bit. Like I do think that teams are kind of caught up on on where he's at right now. And again, that's not a bad thing. Like he's a very valuable archetype especially for the the regular season in my opinion like um i think one of the things that's so underrated about him especially looking at the clippers like i mean as much as we clowned him uh i I personally not i'm not a big fan of clowning people on twitter as you know but like uh i normally just take it myself but uh in looking at you know how he impacted the clippers well he did struggle in the playoffs and he didn't play as much um they don't get there without him in the regular season uh, having somebody who can contribute the way that he did off the bench uh, and really just eviscerate bench lineups is huge. But I, I would I would just say that I think teams are kind of caught up to that now. Well, what I'll add to that is I think if if Montrezl Harrell hadn't played in the postseason in the bubble, how much more would he have made in this last contract? Right. Like, I don't think it would be crazy to say he goes from a two year mid level to like three or four years at 15 million or more per year. And this is something that I was talking about with my friend Sagar on the last podcast about the Bucks. was there is a danger in signing with the contender. I think players tend to fetishize that idea and say, oh, if I help a team win a championship, I'm going to get paid. And there are guys that do that. Like we'll talk about some of them in a little bit, but there are also guys who sign with contenders thinking that's going to be the case. And then when they get to the playoffs and the rotation site and like, Suddenly they're out of the rotation and they're not playing at all. And you've been exposed a little bit as somebody who's more of a bad team player, right? So maybe the best move for Montrez Harrell wasn't signing with the Lakers. Maybe he should have just signed with the Hornets, put up big numbers, and, you know, kind of kept cashing checks that way. Yeah, I mean, you never really know. I mean, he did have a good stretch of the regular season. I think, you know, I mean, the playoffs definitely has an Im- impact, but I, I do think teams probably value, like, I mean, at least the teams who are going to have a lot of money this uh, offseason probably value the regular season quite a bit still. Um, like, I'm trying to, like, a, a good example of where I, I think I would agree with you is looking at, like, the Manya Bielitsa. Um, like, he was somebody, it, it was hard to see because he was, ha- he did not have really a great regular season with Sacramento, but, you know, he went to Miami and I think Miami viewed him as a guy who was going to help them. And that just clearly did not work out. Um, Part of that was just their team was kind of uh, on a downturn the entire back third of the year. But he was a guy who I thought would go to Miami and potentially be able to revitalize his year, um, play like he had the year before and and really shine there and maybe get another deal out of it. And now it's pretty – it feels pretty unlikely in my opinion because he was not even in the playoff rotation, um, wasn't really playing a whole ton down the stretch either after he really struggled when he got there. So that's a, that's a great point. Yeah, Bryn Forbes was who we were talking about before because, like, in the Heat series for a minute there, it looked like, oh, he's going to opt out and, like, maybe get, like, a tax or mid-level or, or something – or a taxpayer mid-level or something. Now I think it feels pretty safe to say he's either going to opt in or he's going to sign somewhere for the minimum or close to it. But speaking of contenders, one of the most frustrating free agency trends – this isn't even basketball exclusive. We see it in football all the time too – is some team wins the championship – and either all of their role players get signed to bigger, theoretically scaled up contracts that they don't deserve, or more often in basketball, whatever it was stylistically that won them the championship turns out to be the new trend. And teams just say, oh, we got to beat Team X, so we're going to sign Player Y. Like last year, look at all of the centers that were signed for the mid-level exception or something like that, just on the logic of like, we need to beef up to play the Lakers. Well, like, I've got news for you, Boston. Tristan Thompson is not helping you beef up to beat the Lakers, right? <laughs> like, you know, Mason Plumlee isn't helping you beef up to play the Lakers. But we see this almost every year. One of, like, the craziest was there was this stretch in, like, 2015, 2016, 2017, where every team was obsessed with finding the next Draymond Green. So that's how you end up with, like, Solomon Hill getting four-year 60 million or whatever he gets because they're thinking, oh, he's a, you know, switchable defensive forward that can shoot a little bit. That's not what makes Draymond special. So we see this almost every year. Even Rajon Rondo last year is terrible for two straight regular seasons, is very good in the playoffs, and he cashes in with the Hawks. So I'm trying to figure out what the trend is, 
what are teams going to look at the Bucs and say, this is what we can emulate? I don't think their size and their athleticism is really replicable. Something that I've sort of wondered about is, do you think offensive rebounding could come back into vogue a little bit after the way they just killed the Suns on the boards? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't, I don't really know what teams are going to take away from this to be completely honest. Like I think if there's really anything, it's almost more, I would take away kind of what you saw missing for, um, for some teams. Like I would say, like I took more away from the Suns with the guys who were out. And again, it's not to say like, I think even if the Suns are fully healthy, they're probably losing uh, unless, you know, I think Chris Paul was probably injured, but that's a whole other I agree discussion. with that. But um, like you saw how big it was missing Dario Saric. Um, and it's not even about like that Saric is this awesome above replacement player. Like he, he just provides them another look. I think that's what I would take from, this playoffs in general. And I wonder if teams take the same thing too, but it's more about just having lineup versatility. Like I think I learned the most this playoffs from the Hawks. Like, I mean, the Hawks were able to get through playing like 10 or 11 deep, almost the entire playoffs, which was kind of like, I mean, that's the, 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 the last team I can remember doing that and actually being effective in the playoffs is like the 14, 15 Hawks. Um, and the, you could even debate how effective they were in the playoffs, but um so I think maybe we'll see a lot of guys, a lot of teams be like wings, let's get wings, which is easy to say, but um, like finding guys who can really uh, um, linchpin your, your lineups, I think would be the way to put it. Like we saw this year, there are just a lot of teams who struggle with, with lineup construction because they don't have guys who can um, hold things together. Like we saw that with the, the, the jazz this year, like really just missing somebody who could um be there in between, you know, Bojan Bogdanovic and, and Rudy. You have to have somebody with size who can still be mobile and hang on the perimeter uh, and be capable on offense. So in some ways, it's it's almost saying, you know, teams are going to be like, we need fours. And I do think, like, especially looking at – I've done a lot of draft work, and looking at this draft, there are a lot of guys who are going to be bets like that. Um, that's kind of what I would see too. And I, I know this is a long tangent, but, like, one last thing, like, Looking at the Clippers is another great example as well. And I think teams will take stuff away from that too. Like, all right, is somebody going to swing hard on Nick Batum and say, okay, he could be our guy who is like a three, four, five, like just plays a bunch of front court positions, can handle the ball, can pass and can shoot and play defense for us. The, the reality is there just are not a lot of guys like that. And that's why you're seeing the very best teams are the guys who have those guys to swing series for them. I would be very wary of paying Nick Batum if I wasn't one of like five or six teams because we saw what happened in Charlotte, right? Yeah. Like I hate to do, we I've been going down this road a lot lately, but there's something about French forwards going to Charlotte and just disappearing until they get back onto a contender. We started with Boris Dia, then it was Nick Batum. Like I think if Nick Batum signs with the Warriors, you're right, that's a great fit. I think if Nick Batum signs with the Lakers, it's similar. But if Nick Batum signs with the Wizards, maybe not so much. So I do agree. The Clippers are a really interesting example to me and the Hawks to an extent too. Well, actually, no, let me hone in on the Hawks. The Hawks are so interesting to me because they really like, aside from Trey Young, you could argue that there's no single player that they have to have on the floor for 45 minutes when they're fully healthy, right? Like if they want to play jumbo, like they can put Clint Capella and John Collins on the floor together. Or like we didn't really see much of the Colin or the Capella, a combination, I would suspect we might see it next year, but they could also put DeAndre Hunter at center and just overwhelm you with shooting. It is so hard to accumulate that many starter level players. And I think it's an interesting alternative to the, let's say the Nets path, right? Where you go all in and you have three stars. I wonder if more teams are going to look at what Atlanta does and say, like, I'm not going to say this is replicable because they hit on so many draft picks and they signed so many good contracts, but like, I wonder if there's going to be a push and Memphis is in this boat too, by the way, where they have one like quote unquote star with John Morant, but then they have like 12 other guys that can really play. I wonder if depth is something that's going to come back into vogue a little bit. The Bucks didn't have it, but the fact that the Suns didn't have it might be why they lost the finals. Yeah, no, it's a totally great point, man. I, I, I concur 100% with that. Like it just having versatility and having the depth is extremely important. I've been thinking about Jared Allen as somebody who could benefit in the same ways that like, look at what we were praising DeAndre Ayton for, for a lot of the playoffs. It was for doing a lot of traditional center things, right? It was mm. getting 15 rebounds and rolling hard to the rim and like not demanding post touches. 
I've sort of wondered if that in combination to how important rebounding was for the Bucks could maybe get him, I don't know, four years, 90 million, four years, 80 million, something like that. I just don't see a team form is my issue. Oh, so he's actually, um, Charlotte has a lot of cap space, if I remember correct. Off the top yeah, of I've been thinking about Rashawn Holmes for them, but I do think yeah. that's Oh, yeah, like I see, I think it's interesting because, like, I mean, Rashawn Holmes is the top center free agent this offseason, bar none. Um, it just feels like somebody is really going to sell out for him, and I don't know if it's going to end up being Charlotte because so much has been, like, already linked with, with him to Charlotte. Like, everybody's been trying to push Rashawn Holmes to Charlotte. I wouldn't be surprised if he just re-ups in Sacramento. Um, I mean, Sacramento is probably hoping that he re-ups because I don't know what they're doing otherwise. But uh, I, I do think Jared Allen is really intriguing with that because I think uh, – I mean, he had a good season in Cleveland, um, which, you know, of course, it's it's hard to notice that sometimes with how Cleveland was this year. But, um, like, honestly, two years for 80 or two years – I mean, not two years. Jeez, two years for 80 would be a lot. Uh, four years for 80 or four years for 90 is not as disastrous as I think some people would think for Jared Allen. But I agree, like he's somebody who I think teams could look at and say, um, hey, this guy is is really, really big. He's really versatile. He's not going to demand the ball. Let's pay him. And I think that that's kind of, you know, in talking to a lot of people about this, I did a podcast not too long ago talking about kind of the trajectory of the modern big um, and, and front courts in general. And like, I think uh, there's just been so much aversion to bigs from, 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 you know, discourse in general, like, oh, you know, you can't pay bigs. You don't want to, you don't want to draft Evan Mobley second because he's a big. And I think it's so much less about that. It's more in the last five years, we've seen how difficult it is for guys to hang at the five in the league. And even at the four too, as that's changed, like Derek favors was a starting power forward like four years ago. And, and look at how that's changed now. Um, so I think it's more about like, if there are guys like there's a smaller amount of guys who can hang on the court for starter minutes as, as a, as an NBA center and paying those guys is going to be at a premium, I think in some ways. And I, I do think Jared Allen's that kind of guy. He, you can play multiple pick and roll coverages with him. Uh, he's not going to be a liability on offense as he starts to round his game out. And there are like some flashes of a real touch with him too. He's like a good free throw. He's player. a really good passer. Like yeah, that's really underrated too. Um, I would just, I think the caveat is I think playing starting minutes at center in itself is not that difficult. It's playing starting minutes at center in the playoffs that becomes so difficult. Well, yeah, right? that's like, that's that's my caveat yeah. too. Like, yeah, guys right. who can play 25 plus a game in the playoffs, like Jared Allen is probably on the borderline for that. And I so I think you know, a, a team is gonna look at him and say, Well, he's 23 years old. We think he's going to grow more with our player development staff. We're gonna pay him. And I think that would make sense. But there are think, other guys too. Like I'm trying to think who, who else is a center this this offseason. Uh, I'm pulling up my cap sheet right now. I'm um, sorry, go ahead. I mean, I'm really I'm honed in on Rashawn Holmes. His situation is so fascinating. Just to give a 30 second, you know, brief explainer on what's going on with him and the Kings. Rashawn Holmes only has early bird rights because he signed with the Kings two years ago. So unless they generate cap space, they can only give him around $10 million starting next season. It's 105% of the mid-level. So I'll say roughly 10 million, maybe a little bit more. Some team is going to offer Rashawn Holmes more than 10 million. I think there's yeah. a good chance that it's the Hornets. What I will say about the Hornets is most teams would be very scared of Jared Allen's restricted status because if you sign him to an offer sheet in Cleveland matches, then everybody else is gone, right? And your cap space becomes much less valuable. I would say for Charlotte specifically, that's not all that dangerous because their cap space isn't exploding, right? Like they don't have some big contract extension that's going to kick in next year and rob them of all their space. If they had to roll their space over into next offseason, I don't think that would be the worst thing. So you're right. Maybe they are the, the Jared Allen team. But if they're the Jared Allen team, then you wonder who the Rashawn Holmes team is, right? Like is Dallas going to invest $15 million a year in a center in Holmes? I don't think so. I think that would be out of character for Toronto as well. We'll see where Evan Mobley ends up too. Like if for whatever reason, Cleveland doesn't take Evan Mobley, then Toronto does. And they're out of the center market. Yeah, no, exactly. Like the, there's, there are just so many moving parts in how things could work out this offseason. even with it. I mean, free agency is what, 10 days away now, um, which is just wild to say still, but um, I feel like things are going to change just in the next five days as trades finally start to trickle in. Um, headed up to the draft. Well, in Cleveland too, like if, if Cleveland re-signs Jared Allen and they draft Evan Mobley, I think that's obviously suboptimal for both of them. 
because in the playoffs, ideally Evan Mobley is playing center in the regular season. He can play the four, but he's less valuable at the four, right? So you're getting less value out of somebody that, you know, might be the most valuable young prospect on your team. So it is a very complicated situation and I don't have a good answer for it, but I do think in general, you are probably higher on paying centers than I am. I sort of fall into the, I'm not fully on the don't pay centers at all, you know, train, but I tend to be pretty skeptical, skeptical. John Hollinger said something really interesting in a recent podcast that the danger in really investing in a center is that the replacement level for center is so high that if that guy isn't really, really special, you just end up overpaying for something that you could have gotten for like the minimum or the mid-level. Right. And that's the danger with Darren Allen. Like I think he's better than a mid-level center, but is he so much better that you'd pay him an extra 7 million a year, 8 million a year. That's a philosophical question that there isn't an easy answer to. But next on this list, this is, I would say, the most common cause of bad contracts is the bird rights trap, which is essentially we are above the cap or, well, actually, no, I'll save that part. But we are above the cap. We have no way of replacing this player. So we have to re-sign him. Otherwise, we're just, we're losing the asset for nothing. Nick Batum in 2016 is a great example of this. There are a lot of, Marcus Morris last year. Um, There are a lot of great examples of this. There are really too many to list, but this is, I think, the single most likely cause of a bad contract. I'll throw out some names for this year. P.J. Tucker with the Bucks. They are so far above the cap that, like, they're not replacing him if he leaves. Danny Green with the Sixers, same thing. And then there's the big one, which Phoenix, this isn't necessarily true of because they can create a fair bit of cap space if he leaves. But Chris Paul is sort of in that camp, right? Where you're looking at paying a 36-year-old with a pretty extensive injury history just because you can't really replace him. That's a dangerous position to put yourself in. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I still am in the camp of like, I mean, Chris Paul was the best player on the team this year. And Yeah, you have to pay him just yeah, because you, you have, have a chance to, to win the championship. Um, but exactly. it's dangerous still. Well, like, look, it's a really great point, like bringing up P.J. Tucker. Like, I think that's one where as much as P.J. Tucker was really important for their run, um, I don't think that you can you can afford to pay P.J. Tucker whatever he might end up getting. And I don't even know if he'd want to stay in Milwaukee. But point being, that one's tough to see because he's what? I think he's 30, 35 36. now. Yeah. Oh, sh- he's 36. Yeah. I mean, so you don't need, you have no idea with that. Um, but that's a great point. Like, we have seen a lot of those happen. Like, I, I – I think I was a little bit too critical of the Marcus Moore signing originally. Like I was, oh, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I was somebody who I was against the Marcus Morris trade when they did it. I thought Mo Harkless was honestly really good for them. And, and Marcus Morris didn't bring that much more to the table than Mo Harkless did. That ended up not being completely the case. I think, you know, we really saw in the playoffs, like Marcus Morris just means a little bit more in the playoffs because he's somebody who can, who can gives you again, like we're talking about the, the versatility to be out there. It, it sounds uh, insane, but he's just somebody who can give you 20 to 25 pretty good playoff minutes and, and not worry about him getting exposed on either end. Um, and that's something that I, I think I didn't really take into account when, I mean, part of it's my mind's changed in the last two years, but um, like Mo, Mo Harkless was shooting like what, like 40% with the Clippers when he was there. But we know like Mo Harkless, cannot shoot threes in the playoffs. Like that has been his kryptonite his entire time in the league. And, and that's why uh, it's, it's not that rudimentary, but that's a big reason for why Mark Marcus Morris is getting paid. And, and, and he's not um, in the same extent. So um, I totally went off on a tangent. I don't know where I was going there, but. Uh, well, yeah. I'll pick up from there. I think speaking of Marcus Morris, the argument for paying PJ Tucker is that there is no more valuable archetype in all of basketball than somebody who can play small forward, but doesn't have to play small forward, right? Like if you can move pretty seamlessly between three, four, and five, there is no more valuable role player type to have, right? And Marcus Morris, like we saw that when he played center for the Clippers, or I guess when Batum did, however you want to, you know, term that, their offense just got so supercharged but they weren't giving up that much on defense. The defense gets worse, obviously, but just having somebody you can do that, that is so, so rare. PJ Tucker, another example, like how many guys in the NBA can guard Kevin Durant one night and then Chris Paul another. It's just a very, very short list. But for PJ Tucker, like how often does the over 38 rule come into play for a mid-level guy, right? Like that never happened. Like 
somebody like PJ Tucker at his age getting a multi-year mid-level deal, that's really dangerous. We almost never see it. There's not really a precedent. I would just say the thing that, that Milwaukee really has to figure out now is four of their five starting spots are pretty much carved into zone, right? It's Giannis, you know exactly what you're going to get. Middleton, Drew, and Brooke. Brooke maybe over the next few years is going to get phased out, but he's going to be a 30-minute-a-game player in the regular season. I think the Bucs have to figure out what do we really want out of that fifth slot, just like skill set wise. Is it PJ Tucker? Do we just want to go all in on defense? Do you want a little bit more balance with Dante DiVincenzo? Or, you know, they tried to trade Dante DiVincenzo for Bogdan Bogdanovich. Do they maybe try to go down that road again and see can we turn Dante DiVincenzo into another ball handler? Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I don't have a good answer, man. Um, they're a team that it's so hard to, to see how they're going to change things up. Um, you know, I know John Horst won the uh, executive of the year a couple of years ago or two years ago. I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, this next year and this offseason is going to be where he really wins it, in my opinion. Uh, if he's going to win it, I think is the way I should say it, um, because they are just in such a bind. And it is hard to when you get capped out like that and more importantly, not just capped out, you get uh, uh a little bit aged out, at least in your role players and, and the guys that you you do have that are, are more trade chips than, than your, your star players. Um, and it kind of just really caps what you can do overall. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see how that plays out. It is still tough with me with PJ. I don't know. Like I, part of it is I didn't like, he was good against Phoenix, but he wasn't awesome. Like I, they, I, they I, his value was the net series. Yeah, like, like the values really in the series, and that's like, and I, you know, it's getting nitpicky, but I, I just think his va- his value almost means more to me in the playoffs than in the regular season. But um, I don't know. That's a, it's a really interesting question to bring up. The cousin of this of the bird rights trap is the use it or lose it cap space trap, where you have like a rookie extension kicking in the next year, or for whatever reason, like this is the moment that we're going to have cap space. I am really worried about Dallas on this front. I think there is a scenario where like Dallas says, Luca's extension kicks in next year. We're not going to have space. What do we do? There's nobody worth using that money on panic, panic, panic. Let's give DeMar DeRozan like a multi-year deal that looks really bad after year one. I am very, very worried about them. Like, I don't think there's a really good outcome for them this off season other than like, can they find a sucker to take Chris out Porzingis? Maybe, hopefully, I don't know. I'm worried about Dallas is essentially my point. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I think, uh, I mean, A, I'm really interested to see what Nico Harrison does considering he's, you know, it's the first time that they have a uh, a new GM slash president of basketball ops in like 20 years, which is wild to think about. Um, but like you're mentioning, like I think that's when you have to get really creative with making a trade happen because clearly – you know, they are not a team that is going where they want to go with Luka Doncic. Like, clearly, if you have Luka, you are, you're a contending team with how well he's playing right now, and you have to act accordingly. Like, they were in a spot for a while where it was fine. They could be kind of cute seeing just be a first-round out. Um, but they're in a spot now where it's like, okay, well, we have to we have to go all in or find ways to get closer to being that title contending team. And I think this is one where you look at it like, I think you try and use your cap space while trading and trying to find a way to, to line your contracts up because that's, that's the, that's the very difficult part. And that's where your cap guy makes you a ton of money uh, or I mean, makes his money, I should say, because it doesn't happen. I wouldn't say that it doesn't happen super often, but like when you do have that, that summer of hell kind of like this could be for Dallas. Um, I mean, that could alter the course of, of what they're able to do in free agency for the next two or three years. So I agree. Like it's, um, I don't, I don't know if I have an answer for who's going to get um, totally like bought out by them, but I would also say again, like, it's just right now we can see the picture and say, yeah, well, they have all this cap space. How are they going to use it? Like, yeah, it could, it could look very different uh, before the draft or, or by the end of the draft, get, given how trades work out. So the other issue for Dallas is I had laid out early in the offseason, right after they lost to the Clippers, this plan where, Okay, you have all this cap space. Chris Stapps Porzingis has three more years in his deal. What if you use your space to sign a bunch of three-year deals and say, this is our core for the next three, and then we're going to have max cap space in 2024 when Devin Booker and Jamal Murray and a bunch of other stars become free agents? And that at that point, you would say, let's recruit somebody to play next to Luca. 
I think that would have been a really interesting plan six, seven years ago. But now it seems like stars are getting agitated so much earlier. Can you afford three more years of not like really being in the title picture with Luca? Or I guess more accurate, like maybe they do make a real run. Like if you sign DeMar DeRozan and you fix the defense up a little bit, maybe you do make it to like the conference finals, but then you backslide a little bit. Like that's the real danger for Dallas, right? Like you, what you really need is a true co-star for Luca, and there just isn't one out there right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I think I've really thought about this stuff a lot, especially with the draft um, and the way that I've looked at that. And I think what's changed up for me is that I look at instead of looking at like your window, I think you just have to look at it year by year in some regards. Like, obviously, you have to structure out your deals and, and your contracts in a way that makes it so you can be viable and, and flexible uh, throughout, you know, whatever stretch. But at the same time, like, I think you just kind of have to, you have to make decisions based on what's going to happen that year and figuring it out from there because things change. So like you're, like you're mentioning, I mean, things change so swiftly. Uh, like even if you're signing a guy to a three or four year deal, I don't think at this point you can look at it in terms of like, Oh, well, this is the guy who, you know, we're going to have in our core for the next three or four years. Like, I think that's the idea, but like, it's almost like being a, a non-committal person in a relationship, which that's an awful analogy. That's the only thing I could come up with off the top of my head, but like, you're always just kind of looking at how you're going to make things better. Like, and this is why I never want to work in a front office. Cause I don't like doing that. Like I, I, I like, it just, it hurts me as a person to do it, but like, that's the thing you look at. Like if you, let's say they do sign a Marta Rosen to a three-year deal or something. Um, they're probably looking for ways to use that in, 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 in moving to, to find the next part of their title team. Because I, I mean, I, I do think there are of course questions with Demar, but We've also never seen DeMar play with that level of player before, so I would hedge on that too. But, um, no, that's a really great point, man. Uh, and I think it's just hard to see how – I mean, even just looking back, let, let's say, three years ago, um, and we're looking at the Bucs. Uh, I mean, crap, the Bucs three years ago, so that's 17-18 season. They make what, the second round of the playoffs that year? They lose in seven to Boston in the first round. Yeah, exactly. So it's like – did we see them coming on the on the train the way that they have to now? Um, just point being, like a lot can change in three years. So um, I feel like I'm throwing a lot of hedges your way, but that's uh, that's that's where I'm at with it. Well, Phoenix is a great example of this too, right? Like they had the second worst record in the NBA two years ago, and it's not like at that point they used their lottery pick to add. I hate to bring this up, but Luca. Um, so Dallas. I think the nice segue for this is one of the mistakes that doesn't happen as often, but tends to be the most damaging is doubling down on a past mistake. And we can bring up Chris Stapp's Porzingis here where Dallas trades. It's not like they traded everything to get him, but there was sort of this feeling of like, we're done it. We we're in, we're going to give him this five-year deal because we're totally committed. And look how that contract looks right now. Not great. Tobias Harris and Philly is another example. We gave up multiple first round picks to get him. So we can't let him walk for nothing. We have to give him the max. I am, I, there isn't a super obvious candidate for this mistake this year. There are two guys that I'm sort of eyeing. The first one we brought him up a little bit is in the extension market. It's DeAndre Ayton, where they pick him number one overall. And I do think like he had a very good postseason in a lot of respects. I think if Ayton had been the number nine pick, he wouldn't be talked about as somebody getting a max this offseason. Do you agree with that? Like, do you think there's a little uh, I, bit of pedigree? I think I would disagree personally. I, I mean, I thought he was awesome, uh, especially in the playoffs. Like, um, he obviously struggled in the finals, but again, that was that was his first playoff run. What is he? I think he's 22. Um, like, we've seen real brilliant flashes on the offensive end, um, and I think, like, just looking at it, like, I mean, he was probably other than Joel Embiid. Uh, obviously, I mean, I would consider Giannis a big in some ways, uh, but outside like Joel Embiid and Giannis, was there a better big man in the playoffs? I don't think so. Well, can we count Jokic? I mean, he was better. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. My bad. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's been so long since they played it. It almost feels like they didn't exist. But um, yeah, I mean, like in terms of guys there, like I think it sounds dicey giving him a max contract on surface, but I mean, he was the number one pick for a reason. And it's not just pedigree. Like I think we've seen enough of a track record in the first three years where 
maybe you don't want to give him the full max, but I think there are expectations that he's going to grow into it. Um, so well, I that's think the, that's the proposition, right? If he was the number yeah. nine pick, you might not think that he had the upside that he does as a number one overall pick. So I guess they kind of go hand in hand. What I'd be a little worried about is a situation where like you're making these emotional decisions based on making the finals. And all of a sudden, maybe Aiton's max in itself isn't super damaging, but you're also paying Bridges a ton of money. And Booker obviously is on a well-deserved max. And whatever you're giving Chris Paul to, now you're suddenly looking at a team that like maybe in a year or two has, with normal injury luck, is more like a second-round team that is you know deep into the tax, and you don't really have the flexibility to do anything else. Although I will say, I'll talk about this in more depth when doing a Suns podcast tonight as well. My sneaky theory for the Suns is that if they kind of backslide just a little bit, they're the Carl Anthony Towns team in a few years if he doesn't make the playoffs. So maybe they do have a little bit more flexibility, Like maybe, but I don't want to go down that road too far. The other guy in this camp that I want to throw out, and I don't feel good about this because I think he's going to deserve the contract that he gets, but it's just not a great situation for his team is, is Norm Powell, right? Because Portland is going to have to go into the tax to re-sign him, and they're a first-round team right now, and I don't see a really obvious path out of that plus if you trade Damian Lillard are there going to be that many teams that want to trade for the Norm Powell contract afterwards right like do you think they're going to be able to find a taker for Powell at like 18 million dollars a year yeah I think so um like I mean Norman Powell was uh it's tough because this year was a career year that we didn't expect and he finally shed the 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 streakiness that's kind of just been what his career has been uh, written by um so I do think there are like some ways to look at and be like, oh, it's a little, it's a little dicey. But at the same time, I'd say you know he's a you know uh, an average defender while being on the wing, being able to to create for himself, shoot well from three, um, and just be a really good play finisher. Like those contracts are easier to move, in my opinion. And I do want to go back a little bit to Aiton because this is where I get hung up. Like I I, I think the guys that you have to walk on. I'm not extending in my opinion is like looking at um, like we're talking about with, with the guys. And uh, so going back to Cleveland, like I think in retrospect, you probably walk on J.R. Smith um, or like some of the role players who got paid in Cleveland are the guys who I don't think that you pay. Well, there were non-basketball um, considerations. Yeah, no, I know point being like, I mean, like, of course, like it, it, just looking at it, from a top-down approach, like if if we're pretending that clutch doesn't run everything, like we'll say that okay, you know, for other reasons we're not we're not keeping J.R. Smith, and we'll find somebody else who makes sense. Um, and looking at Aiden, it's just different to me because I would I think, and this is just my personal thoughts on it. Like, if you are a team that is trying to contend right now, you have to overpay your good players in some ways. Like even if you are quote unquote overpaying DeAndre Ayton, overpaying DeAndre Ayton means a lot more for your team than letting him go and getting, you know, like even if they got Rashawn Holmes, they are a worse team. Like I like Rashawn Holmes. He does a lot of good stuff and he is a, he's a damn good basketball player, but well, let's not even say Rashawn Holmes. If they get Jared Allen, like that team is probably four or five wins worse and they definitely don't get as far in the playoffs. Like, I think there are just parts you have to look at and they're knowing when to overpay is important or knowing when to be willing to pay is important. And he's one of the guys that I think you would have to do it for. Cause he's like, if you're at that level of being that high impact in the playoffs um, or just in general, like he's probably one of the guys who maybe he is not ever quite worth exactly the max. Like he's one of the guys who's on the max is definitely a top 20 player in the league, but it, you know, it just for the most part, like when you think, okay, this guy's getting paid the exact same amount of money as LeBron James or Giannis, of course, it makes you be like, well, well, why is that? But that's just how the CBA works. And I think you have to, you have to stomach it. Yeah. To be clear, like I would never suggest that they let Aiden walk. Like they have to resign him. Just their window to win a championship is the next couple of years, let's say before Chris Paul ages out and you probably take a little bit of a step back. So you have to pay him, but I personally would be pretty wary of paying any player a max that does not either create shots, and that's not what Aiton does. He finishes. He's a play finisher. Or is like a, at least as a center, like defensive player of the year caliber guy, which like Aiton has improved by leaps and measures since he was a rookie. But I don't really see an outcome for him where he's like Anthony Davis or Giannis or like 
one of these big men that like just totally blows up everything the opposing team does. So I, I would be a little bit wary of it, but I would still do it. As far as Norm Powell goes, you mentioned his streakiness kind of this year, really shooting himself out of it. That's pretty common among contract year guys. And I think that's a good place to kind of close is we see this every few years, right? Like Trevor Ariza on a contract year is a meme at this point. Guys who just, <laughs> for whatever reason, the year before they become a free agent, like suddenly all of the flaws in their game disappear. Hardaway is somebody that I'm really looking at for that this year because he was kind of streaky before this year. I would be pretty wary of paying him just based on last year versus what he typically is. Yeah, um, that's a good. That's a good point. I, I just think it's a little different because given the what, like given what he's going to uh, probably command, like you mentioned, I think 18 million probably sounds about right for Norm. Um, I, I just think there aren't really that many guys in the NBA. I mean, I'm sure I could probably pull a bunch out of my, uh, you know, out of nowhere now, but, um, in looking at Norm, like, I just like, if he, I, I think you in some ways have to pay him for what he did this last year, uh, we're expecting, you know, maybe some regression, but at the same point, like if it doesn't work out, that is a tradable contract still like, uh, I, it, it is a little bit dicier with him, but I, I just think there were meaningful improvements in his game. Like it wasn't just like this, the streak sorting itself out. I mean, part of it was because he cleaned up some of his shooting habits and, and the way that he was attacking things. So I think you are banking on that continuing in the next year. Um, and just like it, what he was able to do this year does warrant that kind of deal, in my opinion. Um, but it's definitely, a, it's, it's a lot closer for call and same thing with Tim. Like I, I think, it almost makes more sense for, for Dallas to re-sign Tim Hardaway than um, for another team to sign him for, for the same amount of money, just because like we talked about earlier, what Luca does for him, um, especially this year, I think that opened things up. And um, I don't know, it, it's, there's, there's so much to contemplate with this off season. Well, there's also a musical chairs aspect to it where like I have eight teams in like meaningful cap space position. Eventually like those teams are going to spend their money and there are going to be three, four, five pretty good free agents that are still left that are just going to be like, well, crap, where do I go now, right? Like, I don't think that's going to be Powell because I think just Portland's bird rights ensure that he's going to get paid there. But there are guys that I'm worried about. Hardaway is one of them, right? Like, I think there's a scenario where Dallas decides we're using our space on outside guys and none of the cap space teams look at Hardaway in his late 20s and say, like, we're really excited about giving him three years. I'm a little worried. There's a scenario where like Hardaway's taking a mid-level somewhere. He played way above that last year. But if you look at like the, the entirety of his last four-year contract, something above, like slightly around or slightly above the mid-level is probably what he deserved. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can't entirely disagree because he did struggle with the, the, the two and a half years prior. Like I thought he was pretty good in, uh, in 1920. Um, but no, that's fair. I mean, like there is always the thought, okay, well, what if this guy does regress back um, because it's in a different scenario? But at the same time, like I think as an organization, you have to look at it and say, if you're going to be willing to give somebody that much money, it's not just in a vacuum, you know, like you're looking at it and saying, okay, well, we believe that you're going to be able to do this in this role. And so we're going to sign you to that. And, you know, I guess you could say there's some, some, uh, some bias from teams in the way that they maybe view how a guy could fit in their, their organization. But um, at the same time, I still think they're, you know, these guys are scouting things. They're looking at it. They're going to, they're going to know what they're looking at, even if it maybe doesn't always end up in the, um, the decision working out or being the right decision. Um, I do think that there is, uh, some real room where that could work, but I definitely see your point there. I just, in closing, what I'm just going to say about bad contracts in general is it is so hard to get every single one of them, right? You look up at the box roster there isn't really a contractual mistake. Like there are guys that they in the past had had the stretch, but like go up and down that roster. Giannis, great value. Drew, great value. Middleton, great value. Brooke, great value. Like there isn't bad money really anywhere on that roster. And I can't really think of a championship team over the last, God, it's been a while that has had like a really bad contract, just like making it so much harder for them to, you know, do whatever it is they need to do to build up a roster the stakes are high here, right? Like it only takes one miss to make things significantly harder on you. And we're going to see misses. That's just how free agency works. So Mark, before we go, 
anything you have to plug? Like, what are you up to right now aside from avoiding sea vermin? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me on, man. I always enjoy getting to talk. Um, you can find me on Twitter at mschindlerNBA. You can find all my work at Premium Hoops uh, and Indie Cornrows. Um, I also just started up a Patreon recently uh, because I'm still trying to find full-time employment in basketball now that I'm done with, uh, with school. So uh, any support, whether it's reading, listening, or if you have the money to su- su- support it, I would appreciate that greatly. Um, but thanks stuff for having me on, man. This was great. Somebody go hire Mark. Like I'm, <laughs> I would hope that this was a good endorsement of, of his worth as a basketball thinker. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. Listeners go support the Patreon too, but somebody go hire Mark, but um, that'll that. do it for us. That'll do it for us here today. Um, I am, I'm not sure when this is posting, so I can't really give any programming notes, but there will be plenty of podcasts in the near future, just given everything that's about to happen. So that'll do it for us today, and we will be back very soon.